I'm Tom Henley, and this is Saga. Today's episode is a little bit different, special even. Today's episode, Cuba, Sweden, is going to be split into three sections, from when men dug for gold all the way up to today. Let's get to it. Part one, the rifle. On the first day of spring this year, I made my way into central Stockholm up five floors in an old, beautiful Swedish building to meet a man who was at the heart of a story that helped bind Sweden and Cuba closer together. Well, my name is Anders Riesing and I'm a Swedish photographer. Uh, I've been working with freelance photography all my life and uh, I started in the middle of the 90s uh, working in Havana, in Cuba, with architecture photography and uh, uh, I really fell in love with the city and the people. Uh, I uh, had some friends, people came all the time. Oh, Anders, he's in Havana, let's go visit him. And then there was a couple uh, f- friends of mine who came in 99. And uh, they said to me, Anders, I think I have the, the weapon of Maceo uh, Winchester rifle in my... Uh, in, in, in my, um, some of my relatives owns it. They inherited and they got it from Maceo. I don't know what to do with it. So a close friend tells Anders, oh yeah, right. My relative was in possession of a rifle belonging to some Antonio Maceo. Now, if you had told this to a Cuban, he may have possibly fainted. That's because of who Marcelo was and what he means in terms of Cuba's history. But we will get to that. At that point, Anders still had no idea how much gravity his friend's brief mention of the rifle held. Well, I didn't know who Marcelo was. I know he he's on a statue on a horse, standing up like this and like a real warrior. So I... Uh, I, I, I forgot about it. I forgot about it. And then about uh, uh, about um, three three years ago, my son, who was also a photographer, and he lives in Cuba, and he married to a Cuban girl, he said to me, "But Anders, Daddy, what about Thomas? Told me about that the rifle. What was that? Oh, I, I, I don't remember. I don't remember." But he said the rifle, he had the rifle in his family or something like that. Well, we have to check it out. So I went to a friend of mine who is actually the, like Fidel Castro for old Havana. His name is, he's a historiador, Sieber Leal Spengler. 
and I mentioned to him, well, Eusebio, I think, I think we have the rifle in Sweden of Maceo. And he went up like a rocket from his chair. This is not possible. Is it? Because this is something really strong. They are so interested in all these things that belongs to the old heroes before, you know, revolution. It was 1890 something. And the story was, and he said to me, can you, can you try to investigate and see what, 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 if it's possible to, to find it? Well, I'll, I'll do my best and I think I said too much now. Anders started to realize that there was something here, something important that he felt he needed to look into. First, he had to find out who exactly Marseille was and how his rifle made its way into Sweden. Marseille was a freedom fighter against uh, the Spaniards in the, the end of the 90s, the middle of the 90s. And he was in Costa Rica. Uh, like, he was like a, a Che Guevara in the 90s that Che was in the 50s and 60s. Really freedom fight, and he was black. So he was called the Bronze Titan. And uh, he was in Costa Rica gathering people to fight against and also gathering money to fight against the Spaniards. Then in Costa Rica, he met a Swedish guy. He was a gold digger in Costa Rica. And uh, when he was, was to move the gold from the mines to the bank or wherever, he uh, hired Antonio Maceo to guard his gold and they became friends. And uh, Maceo left for uh, Cuba, I think in 94 or 95 or something like that, and gave this rifle, the Winchester model 1950, 1853 or something like that, but a repetitive, like the, you see the cowboy, yeah, John yeah. Wayne and those yeah, yeah, yeah. in the Western movies. So he got that rifle. The research into why the rifle came to Sweden was done, but finding out where it was there and then, hundreds of years later, was the next step. Well, where could I find that rifle? I had no idea. So I have to call my friend who told me 15 years earlier, what happened to the rifle? Well, you know, uh, we wanted to give it to Fidel in Cuba. So we wrote a letter and said we had this rifle in the family and uh, we were willing to, uh, to, uh, uh, to give it to the Cuban state. But we didn't get, didn't get any answer. Hmm. So what should we do with it? Because it's been into the family, it's generations and... Uh... He kept digging and he came up with a name. An old lady named Eva Wilson. She turned out to be... The last one who had the rifle and she donated it to the Eskilstuna Weapon Museum. I took a train out to Eskilstuna myself and headed towards the city museum to meet the people who took over the hunt from Anders after he had found out where he had been hiding all those years. So we get a, a question, do you really have this rifle? And we didn't really know if it's, it's for real or so. Uh, my name is Nils Mosberg and I'm head of a museum in, museums in Eskilstuna. My name is Susanne Nickel and I am the collections manager at the city museum of Eskilstuna. Susan and Niels took me into a large conference hall, poured me a cup of warm coffee, sat me down and told me how they fitted into this hunt for the rifle. The um, rifle was handed over to, was to Eskilstuna City Museum in the 70s, I believe, by Mrs. Eva Wilson, who 
uh, was married to the chief of a British museum and was moving to, to England and didn't want to bring the rifle. So Eva left the rifle for obvious reasons. You can't just go around traveling with a rifle in your hand luggage. Years went by and then Anders pops up and starts asking if they have this Winchester rifle in their collection. Susan got to rummaging. And so we started to search. We didn't even know that we have no. it. In the 70s, in the 70s, we have had a, a museum here, which was called the Vapentechniska Museet, showing the technical development of all the weapons. This museum was closed down, and uh, then the whole collection was packed, and so it wasn't on show. And the people who had worked with that in the in the weapon museum, they had all gone into pension or changed jobs and so on. So we didn't really know what we had. Then we started to search. And we searched and searched and searched. Um, I think it took around about one or two days to, okay. to find it. It was, it was uh, uh, in our terms, it was fast. <laughs> no one could really believe it. The gun had been found. Nils and Susan rang up Anders to tell them their news. I'm the detective who found the rifle. I found the rifle. The Maceo rifle. It's here with a silver inscription uh, on the rifle that is donated from Maceo, the freedom fighter, to Axel Kögren. Great, I said. So uh, how can we transport it to Cuba? Oh, well, I have to check if there is a weapon license on it. Uh, okay. This is where things started to slow down, weighed heavy with rules and legal obstacles. After all, the friends from Cuba wanted the rifle there as soon as possible. But in this day and age of terror, it wouldn't be that easy. My friend from Havana called me and sent me emails and said, what's happening, what's happening, what are you doing? We have the birthday of, uh, celebrating the birthday of um, Antonio Maceo. No, we I don't think we can make it until the birthday. Okay, perhaps at the death of Maceo, December. I'm not sure, but I will see what I can do. Yeah, you have to help me now, Anders. And then uh, the Cuban ambassador here in Sweden called me, Anders. Let's go over to Eskilstuna and touch the rifle. Well, I'm in Gotland, I can't come. Uh, but what, what do you think? If I bring a bottle of rum, can I bring, take the rifle with me? Uh, it doesn't work like that in Sweden, I said. Uh, but if I bring a box of rum, 12, 12 bottles? I don't think it works like that. It's, you know, it's very, also very uh, uh, complicated, as in Cuba, if you want to do so. Okay, okay. But I invite them all for uh, mojitos when I get the rifle. In the end, mojitos were not exactly needed. Susan and Niels back in Eskastuna were hard ironing out the legal difficulties in getting the Winchester rifle home. For Susan, it was a pet project, and she had put all she had into it, and it paid off. Well, so finally everything was settled for the rifle to leave Cuba. And then once again the ambassador would call me, Anders, you're going to Cuba now, yes? Bring, take the rifle with you on the airplane. I don't think I can take a rifle on the airplane like that. Uh, but I can perhaps get a box and send it with DHL. No, no, no. You have to hold it. You can't, you can't leave it to someone else to just go like a luggage. That's not possible. You have to be personally responsible of the rifle. Poof, but I, I can't do that. I, 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 I will call with the, the KLM, the air company. Say, no, you can't go. They say you can't travel with a rifle to, to Cuba. That's impossible.
So what happened was the Pope was going to come to Cuba in the autumn to Havana 2015. So two diplomats were sent out from Havana to Rome to give a present to the Pope. The second stop was to visit Putin because he had also some relations going on with Cuba. So they gave him some present as well. The third stop was in Stockholm to pick up the rifle. They managed to get the police uh, authorization to get, take the rifle in the airplane, but it was handcuffed on the, ha on the arm of one of the diplomats and one around the rifle. Oh, really? So they were sitting <laughs> on the airplane with the rifle all the way to Havana. And in Havana, it's really, it was really, really big. He's not kidding. The Winchester rifle that had once belonged to the legendary Bronze Titan, the original freedom fighter, second in command of the Cuban Army of Independence. And now it was home where it belonged, in Havana. And uh, now it's in the uh, State Museum in Old Havana, behind uh, glass and everything, uh, together with a photo of uh, Maceo, and it's on the wall. When it was presented to the Cuban state, all the diplomats in Cuba were invited. So there were like, you know, all the black Mercedes were coming down and the Swedish ambassador made a speech and this, my friend of mine made a speech and there were television there and everything. And I came a few weeks later and then on Mondays the museum were closed and I knocked on the door and said, no, it's closed. But listen, I'm the guy who brought them. Uh, oh! Come in, come in. <laughs> so I was welcome to look at the rifle. <laughs> and now we come to the next part of today's episode and the fascinating ties between Cuba and Sweden. Part two, Olof and Fidel, and this story comes from a man with a scarily impressive resume. Okay, my name is Pierre Choy. I am now the Prime Minister Special Envoy for trying to secure Sweden's candidacy to the Security Council of the UN. Back in 1975, Pierre was part of a group of politicians named Palmer's Boys. You could have possibly called him the Prime Minister Olaf Palmer's right-hand man. Now, Palmer is a fascinating man. In fact, he deserves not only his own episode, but maybe a whole series of saga dedicated to his life and legacy. But today we are focusing on one small but important moment in his career, his trip to Cuba to meet Fidel Castro. As I said, the preview of uh, why we went to, um, to Cuba was that Bruno Kreisky, the Austrian Chancellor at the time, he was also a very broad-minded person. He supported the Club of Rome on the climate issue, environment, which was also way ahead of its time. And at a meeting in, in, in Austria, uh, where Palmer went and I accompanied him, we met people from uh, Venezuela, Algeria, uh, Trudeau was there also. So we decided, he and I, Palm and I, at, afterwards, that we should go and visit Mexico, Venezuela, Cuba. 
The visit, Palmer's visit to Cuba was the first ever by, by any Western leader. The idea was that we, yes, we went to Mexico, we went to Venezuela, we also wanted to have a kind of uh, look at the other side of the coin, if you want to say so. And uh, it was, of course, very interesting because uh, the lesson from that is if you have if you have a dialogue, even with the enemy or with those you don't, whom you don't uh, share common values with, you get access. You can have a dialogue. You can listen. You can show respect. You can say what you think, and and you know you learn a lot, and you can achieve results. And results were indeed achieved. All of Palmer and Fidel Castro got along. They both respected each other and worked out their differences in order to strengthen their relationship and make sure that it would be a long-lasting one. One that years later would make it possible for Antonio Marcelo's rifle to make its way home. Uh, ever since, he, Palmer did what Obama did 40 years later, to break the ice with Cuba. And uh, for the same reasons, because uh, Obama said, uh, uh, our policy of 50 years, the US policy of 50 years, has been hypocritical and useless. It's still the same regime and we have achieved nothing but the risk of having a failed state in Cuba economically and so on. And we, that is not in our interest. So I've authorized increased telecommunications connections between the United States and Cuba. So let us begin, let's have a new start. And Raul Castro answered that Yes, although we have disagreements on certain questions, uh, we need to have a respectful dialogue. So this was what also was Palmer line all the time, also in the relations with Moscow at the time, but um, people like Castro. And we did achieve uh, uh, several things, actually, by talking to Fidel Castro. And uh, we were criticized from the right for this, talking to the dictator. We were criticized from the left from talking with Kissinger, the war criminal, <laughs> as they said. Despite the criticism from both sides of the spectrum, Palmer was dedicated to making this trip successful and legendary. Palmer gave a speech, a public speech in, in Spanish. He read it out in Spanish and we sat, sat in the airplane going from Havana to Santiago de Cuba with Phil Castro. And Palmer was rehearsing his speech in Spanish. Phil Castro said, what, 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 what are you doing? And then he said, I'm going to speak in Spanish. Wow, can I, can I hear a few sentences? And Palmer read out, fine, fine. <laughs> I was the interpreter between the two. So uh, I had to interpret. And it was, it was not easy because it went on for hours. <laughs> But it was, you know, you got to know the person of Fidel Castro and uh, Palma I knew before, but, but uh, it, it showed the, the if, you sh if you show respect, you want to listen to us, you can get a lot in exchange. And Pierre and Olof's trip was indeed legendary. It gave way for other heads of states to at least consider working out how to connect with the bearded man who smoked cigars and who in the late 50s took over the island of Cuba in that iconic revolution. Today, in modern Cuba, there are schools and parks and roads named after Palma. Pierre remembers his old friend. He was a, an icon. He was a, an Obama kind of for the young social democrats and for many young people because he, is, he had intelligence and he had guts and he was, uh, 
he could deliver messages in, in very clear and ambiguous ways. But of course, all of Palmer's story came to a bloody end on the night of February 28, 1986. Swedish police have launched their biggest manhunt for the gunman who assassinated the country's prime minister late last night. Mr. Olaf Palmer was shot in the back while walking home unguarded with his wife after going to the cinema. Police now believe the same bullet that killed the Prime Minister grazed his wife. They say they don't suspect a political motive, but they have no strong clues to the killer's identity. As most Swedish people, you know exactly where you were when you had the news. We came from Guatemala, my wife and my daughter. My daughter was adopted in Guatemala. And we came from Guatemala, and uh, the last evening in Guatemala, uh, we, we were sitting in the evening with some friends. Uh, and uh, the man in the house was an advice, personal advisor to, to the president of Guatemala. And he was still in his office, so we were sitting there waiting for him and discussing about the situation in Guatemala. It was just a few years after the more or less civil war. It was not very safe in the streets, and we were discussing how safe it was back in Sweden compared to the situation in Guatemala. And then the man entered and said, you know, the Swedish prime minister just been murdered in the street in Stockholm. The voice you just heard, reminiscing about Palmer, is our next guest, Jonas Wallström. Okay, my name is Jonas Wallström, and my company is called the Skansen Aquariet, placed within the area of Skansen Foundation, the Open Air Museum in Stockholm. And this is a very unique aquarium because it's mainly monkey business. We are specialized in breeding the rarest, smallest monkeys in the world, as well as being an aquarium, terrarium, which includes crocodiles, and we happen to have the rarest crocodiles too, the Cuban. And it's these crocodiles that brought me there to interview Jonas. But first, a quick summary. Jonas is in Guatemala with his family. He hears the news of his prime minister's assassination. The next day, he flies to Cuba, where 11 years before, Pierre and the now-murdered Palmer broke taboo by visiting Castro. Jonas, a Swede, finds himself in Cuba with the weight of the news from back home lying heavy on him and his family. For Jonas, this would be the start of a long relationship with Cuba, one forever stamped with a connection between the island and Sweden, and one that resulted in the aforementioned snappy friends and news headlines all over the world last year. As the United States and Cuba restore diplomatic ties, the island nation is also seeing a renewed relationship with Sweden. A quick note before Jonas explains more. We met in his office in Skansen Zoo, and we were not alone. Throughout the interview, you may hear some peeps and the sounds of wings fluttering. This was produced by a lovebird that seemed fascinated with my long hair. The bird kept biting at it, and when he got bored, he went for the microphone. So there's that. Anyway, Jonas explains the story behind the news coverage of the crocodiles, Castro and Hillary. They came here in 1980 from Moscow. Yeah, I visited my colleagues in Moscow. I have a lot of cooperation with them. And they were, at that moment, they were rebuilding their terrarium section and they asked if I would like to have two Cuban crocodiles. A pair which they got from a Russian cosmonaut who got them from the hands of Fidel Castro as a gift because that cosmonaut was the chairman of the, the Russian or Soviet Cuban Friendship Society. So he got some babies, 1972, when he visited Cuba. And he brought them back to Moscow and he kept them in his bathroom, which his wife didn't like. So after some time he had to choose between the wife or the crocodiles. And uh, luckily he chose the wife and gave the crocodiles to Moscow Zoo. And then I, I got them from Moscow Zoo in 1980. Yeah. And the Cuban crocodile is the rarest crocodile species in the world because they only exist in a small swamp, Zapata Swamp in Cuba. And they were threatened by illegal hunting 
from the beginning was legal hunting and then it turned out to be illegal hunting and they have some problems with crossbreds with another species. Mm. So they, as of today, there are about 100 pure Cuban crocodiles left. So we've been able to send Cuban baby crocodiles to um, most parts of the world actually. And we can also send to American zoos and they cannot get any Cuban crocodiles from Cuba because you have the trade embargo. It will probably change, but uh, as of today, they can only get Cuban crocodiles from Sweden. The pair we have here, they are regarded by the US Fish and Wildlife as a communistic pair of crocodiles, so they can never go to US. But the babies hatched here in Sweden, they are, they are regarded as socialist crocodiles, or sometimes they were conservative because we have a conservative government here in Sweden, now they're socialists again, and they allow socialist crocodiles to come into US. Well, we were contacted by the Cuban authorities, the wildlife authorities, the envi environmental agency, because they know that we had a pair of purebred crocodiles. You know, Castro would not give away something crossbred. He gave two really good cru cru Cuban crocodiles to the cosmonaut. And now they needed some new blood, because of the hundred founders they have, they know that the two here was unrelated. So they asked if we can spare them some of their babies for a reintroduction project in Zapata Swamp. And of course, we were very glad to have that question. And we responded, of course, no problem whatsoever. And we can probably also arrange for the transport to Cuba because, you know, they have lack of Western currency. <laughs> so we made an agreement with KLM. And we went to Cuba about a year ago, I think it was in April 2015. Before they left, they struck a deal with the airline KLM. KLM uh, spo sponsored it. Mm. You know, we were supposed to have KLM caps, KLM t-shirts, KLM bags. Uh, the, the boxes for the crocodile should be labeled with KLM. And then just a week before we were supposed to leave, one high director in Amsterdam, they had uh, realized this. And he said, well, what about the crocodiles will die during the transport? That's not very good will for KLM. So we had to change the agreement. We had to promise we should not mention KLM at all. But they, they stick to their part of the deal. So they, they sponsored everything that we should not mention anything about KLM. Of course, the crocodiles arrived safely and there were no problems whatsoever. We packed them here and we know how to pack crocodiles. So we know the excitement when Marseille's rifle arrived home. We have heard about the echo that Palma left behind with his visit to Cuba. But what about these crocodiles? Their grandparents were given to a Russian cosmonaut as a gesture of solidarity between Cuba and communist Russia by Castro back in the day. Were they celebrated when they arrived? Well, of course they were. He was a long-lasting symbol of Castro and the revolution's legacy, making their journey back to their rightful country. In fact, it sounds like they may take the prize in the uproar and excitement they caused with their arrival. It was such a big thing when we arrived, you know, Reuters, uh, CNN, all Cuban media, the reporters from, from Swedish television came down from Washington. And you know what, the third day, Fidel Castro himself, 90 years old, came to see the Swedish crocodiles. <laughs> but the story isn't over for Jonas and Cuba, just like it isn't over between Sweden and Cuba. In fact, one could say it's only just starting. And I actually had the clearance just a few days ago from Havana that they have decided that in the, in the autumn this year they are going to release our tent into an area of the, of the Zapata swamps. Mainly, the problem is that there are no nature left. We could send lemurs to Madagascar every year because we have a lot of lemur, be, lemur be, babies, but where should, where should they go? That's all for this week. Saga is me, Tom Henley. 
theme tune is done by the handyman Anton Beckman. Enjoy me next time for more Saga.